0: Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles once again to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. For the better part of the past few months, we have been looking at the the chapters, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, looking at seven letters that were penned by the Apostle John, but dictated by Jesus himself to seven distinct communities of faith in seven cities that existed in Asia Minor. Each of these churches had their own issues. Some had strengths, some had weaknesses. Most were in need of correction. Uh, Most also were in need of affirmation. And as we looked at these letters and began this series, one of the things that I hope to emphasize was that these were written to specific churches but were recorded because they address very common issues. And as we see that these were addressed to churches, we also ought to look at our church and to hear what Jesus has to say and compare that to who we are and to address our own body. At the same time, we also recognize that all churches are made up of individual believers that are netted together, but nevertheless are individual believers. And so the issues that exist in a church are merely the expression of a composite of the believers within that particular church. And so if there is an issue there that may or may not be characteristic of our church, it may still be characteristic for us as individuals where we need either the affirmation or the correction. My hope is, as we've been looking at this series, looking at these letters, that you have been challenged and corrected and encouraged, and ultimately that we all would be able to be built up more to be like Christ, built together that our church would be healthier as a result. We come now to the last of these letters in Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea, beginning in, or reading in verse 14 in a moment. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to your word, we do pray that you would speak to us. This is not just our wish or our pleading with you. Uh, this is asked in accordance with your promise your word always is at work you are granting us wisdom and insight not only into the way things ought to be but into your very nature and even to our own circumstance i pray lord that by the grace of your holy spirit you would open our eyes and our hearts that we may understand our own lives our own motives our own impulses and they may be tempered and shaped by the truth you've revealed in your word. Lord, bless us in this time as we commit ourselves to studying your word. May we realize that we are not purely pursuing an academic activity. We're not feeding our minds. but We are looking for you listening for your voice as you speak through your word, looking to see Jesus, of whom every word of the Scripture testifies. Father, open our eyes and hearts and do your work within us, that we may be more like him. I pray this in Christ's name, who is the Word incarnate. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the church, or to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless us and grant us understanding from his holy word. On the back kitchen window of his ridgetop home in east central Pennsylvania, a man named John Lakaitis can look out and see a a very unusual scene. As Smithsonian Magazine records it, Lakotas tells a story. Just uphill at the edge of St. Ignatius Seminary, the earth is ablaze. Vegetation has been obliterated along a quarter-mile strip. Sulfurous steam billows out of hundreds of fissures and holes in the mud. There are pits extending perhaps 20 feet down. In their depths, discarded plastic bottles and tires have melted. Dead trees, their trunks bleached white, lie in tangled heaps. Stumps venting smoke through hollow centers. Sometimes fumes seep across the cemetery fence to the grave of Lakotas' grandfather. This hellish landscape uh, constitutes about all that remains of a once-thriving town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Now, Centralia, Pennsylvania is not a place that most of you will go visit unless you are particularly curious about this bizarre scene. It once was a thriving, not a wealthy town, but a thriving family town, people enjoying life, comfort, some levels of basic prosperity, until something happened 50 years ago, which was the basis of the article in Smithsonian Magazine. So let me continue as they, again, paint a better picture than I would describing it. 51 years ago, a vast honeycomb of coal mines that at the edge of the town caught fire. An underground inferno has been spreading ever since, burning of depths of up to 300 feet, um, baking surface layers, venting poisonous gases and opening holes large enough to swallow people or even cars. The conflagration may burn for another 250 years along an eight-mile stretch encompassing 3,700 acres before it runs out of the coal that fuels it. Across the globe, thousands of coal fires are burning, nearly impossible to reach and extinguish. Once they get started, the underground blazes threaten towns and roads and poison the air and the soil, in some way even increase the uh, global warming. And the purpose of this magazine, highlighting this particular town as an illustration of what is taking place all around, they tell us that there are, Pennsylvania being the uh, largest source of coal as the worst hazard in the United States with 38 such uh, areas, uh, Centralia being the only one where the town has entirely been evacuated. But apparently that compar- uh, just pales in comparison with what they have in China and in India with their coal resources and then their uh, lack of mining regulations. Sometimes the fires are started by uh, somebody above ground, man, somebody may start it. Other times it's just combustion under the earth. And so underneath towns, villages, wherever people are living... A lot of times, there are a lot of places throughout the world, there are infernos that are raging, unbeknownst to the people who are above until they eventually surface. Now, I share this story with you not because I just think you need to know, not because I have property in Centralia, Pennsylvania I would like to get rid of, but because it's a reminder to us of a reality of life and a direct, uh, I think, a, a wonderful metaphor or a good metaphor of the church in Laodicea. That while things on the surface may appear to be good and comfortable, going as well as they can be, what is on the surface is not always all there is. And the reality is beneath the surface, something can be brewing. It's exactly what Jesus was saying to the church in Laodicea. It's a church that was in a community that was tremendously prosperous, much more so than Centralia, Pennsylvania. It was built not because of its natural resources, but because it was at multiple intersections, crossroads of the marketplace. And so it was a a place for trading. A large banking industry had, had developed there and then continued to increase. And so they were known for their banking, for their investments, and for their prosperity. It was Wall Street. They were known also because of some of their textiles, that while most people tend to think of black sheep as something you don't want to be in your own family, in this particular town, uh, they were known for their black sheep, which wool was apparently as soft as, as can be. And so they raised these black sheep, and then they would shear the, uh, the sheep, and then they would sell, uh, sell their wool all over uh, of Asia Minor, all over the ancient world. People wanted the, uh, the, the, uh, the wool that came from this particular town. Other ingredients that they had around them allowed them to develop a salve for the eye. And because of the inventions there and the wealth that comes with medical inventions, they developed a medical school, and they were known as the ophthalmological capital of the ancient world. People knew the eye, and they were able to do more for the eye there, and so people with vision problems or doctors that were wanting to go back would come, and they would study here. And so it was a tremendously prosperous town, both from an industry and invention and medical. Life was good, and to this town, not too far from Colossia, only a few miles from Colosia, that we read the Colossians and, uh, and other church, uh, communities that received the letters in, here in Asia Minor. At one time, the gospel came to them, probably through um, the ministry, extended ministry of the Apostle Paul. They heard of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It made sense. They embraced him. They began to identify with him. They began to allow him to be their identity, their religious identity, shape their practices and and their and, and the way that they believed. And overall life couldn't seem to have been better. But Laodicea is also an example of a, a church or a Christian that fails to recognize the dangers that the good life or the achievement of the american dream can have to dilute our wholehearted appreciation for jesus who he is and what he has done for us and why he has done it it's because these people fell into that category everything was good identify them as christians themselves as christians basically good people Jesus writes to them, and he identifies himself as he does in each of the letters. Each letter he writes to the people, introduces himself, using metaphors, images, so that people get an idea of who he is. All of them are worth studying themselves because we uh, eliminate the, the, the limited idea of who Christ is. But the idea of using metaphors as specific descriptions are not sufficient to describe him, but they are appropriate for the time. And he comes with an interesting description, self-description of himself as he's writing to these people. He refers to himself as the Amen, the true, the faithful witness, the beginning of all creation. Now, when we hear, I am the Amen, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not the way that we use Amen. We use Amen, we tag it on as a liturgical device at the end of a prayer. Whether we are aware of it or not, the word Amen simply is, means something essentially like Lord's will be done or so be it. Jesus is not out of accord with that, but he's not attaching anything. He's initiating something, saying, I am the amen. And essentially, he's saying, I am the embodiment of the will of the Lord. The Lord's will be done. And when he says, I am the faithful and true witness, it's also helpful to understand that the word witness in the, in the Greek is the same word for martyr. And Jesus is pointing to himself, not as the one who is testifying, by his very living being, even as the scriptures tell us that if we've seen Jesus, we know what the Father is like. Jesus is also pointing to the fact that he is the faithful martyr. He has given his life for us. Essentially, if we put those things together, Jesus is introducing himself and saying to these people and to all of the world, I'm the one who cares so much about God's purposes that I was willing to give my life for it and for you. That's who I am. And then he also adds on that I am the beginning of all creation. And it's important that we understand that there he's not saying, I was created first because Jesus was never created. Jesus has always been. The Father has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he's saying that I'm the first of all creation, he's just simply expressing in shorthand what we read elsewhere in the Scripture, that Jesus is the one by whom and for him whom and through whom all things were created and have their being. So he's addressing these people. He's really, by his introduction, saying, let's get some things straight. I know who you are. I know your works, as he says here in a moment but you need to know who I am and so that you can relate to me. I am the one who is the embodiment of God's purposes. I am the one who has created everything. I am the one for whom everything exists. And I've been watching the way you live your lives. And I know what's going on. And you've got some problems. And Jesus levels two very firm and related indictments. And the two indictments really, one is a, a clear indictment, the other one is also an indictment, but it is the, it's the basis of the initial charge, the most glaring charge. Because the second indictment exists, it's created the condition of the greater indictment. It'd be somewhat like saying, I charge you with murder and with hatred. Um, the hatred would be pretty evident in the murder. Jesus here in the two indictments is saying these are the two indictments. And he begins, we read, in, in verse uh, 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold nor hot. And there's the indictment that he's laying, that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, I, I read that and I confess it for a long time. I won't say that confused me, but I didn't understand what Jesus was getting at there. Because it really, it made no sense to me. Here's Jesus, he's confronting these people, these believers, who apparently clearly had a what would call a lukewarm relationship with him, and he's saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. And I was thinking that that doesn't seem consistent with the relationship that God is calling us to, especially these things, I wish you were either hot or cold. In terms of relationships that I have and that you have, relationships when I counsel, if a marriage is strained, I don't suggest somebody go home and say, I love you. My love runs cold. It doesn't go very well. Very few Hallmark cards for Valentine's Day are going to talk about the coldness of the heart and be received well. And so when I look at this and saying, Jesus is saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. I wasn't sure what he meant. I assumed for a long while it was, I thought that he was saying, if you were hot, then I can have you. And if you're cold, then I know that I won't feel bad about getting rid of you. And I didn't understand what he was saying. And some of you may be confused likewise. Like I said, I didn't understand, but I never told anybody I didn't understand. That would show my own foolish and ignorance. But it wasn't until I began to look at this and then had the benefit of learning from some others, there were some details here of what he's talking about, but also some details that are assumed that the person reading the letter knows. And the original people in the letter would have known because they were the recipients living in that town. It was helpful for me when I began to understand that this town, though it was prosperous and wealthy and had pretty much everything they needed, that it was established not for natural resource not for a way of providing for themselves, but simply because it was a good business location. Where we live was established because it's on the river, water source. Obviously, historically, not a good one at first, but it was a, a water source. Uh, and so there was not only trade, but there was an ability to sustain itself. But this town, Laodicea, had absolutely no natural water source of its own. The water they had was polluted and was not, uh, people weren't able to drink it. drink it. But since it was a prosperous town, people lived there, they needed water, and so what they decided to do in their wealth, in their ingenuity, they created a a very complex aqueduct system to a nearby town of Hierapolis, which was known for their hot springs. And they piped it several miles, the water was piped from Hierapolis, they paid for that, they put the whole thing, was piped through kind of a stone wooden uh, uh, system from that town until it came to their town and there was sufficient water supply for everybody that lived in, uh, lived in Laodicea. The problem they had is by the time it left the hot springs, traveled several miles, the temperature cooled down significantly. But because it was not going through cold springs and it wasn't iced, the water came and was basically air temperature or, or was lukewarm when it got to the people. And so when Jesus was speaking to them, he's speaking to them of something that everybody that lived in that town may have loved living in the town, but it was the one thing they hated about living in that town that they all resented about living in that town. And he's pointing that out. And you all hate the fact that the water you have is, is lukewarm. It's neither hot nor it's cold. Well, you know what? That's exactly what your hearts are like to me. He wasn't pointing out so much that they were that only that their hearts were, were tepid. But he was also pointing out to them something even more profound and practical when he says to them, I wish you were either hot or cold but being lukewarm makes me, I'll I'll spit you out. He's saying, you're useless. And in this indictment, Jesus is saying something that's important for us to consider. Perhaps for some of you, it will be a great encouragement. For others of us who are here, it will be an indictment similar to the way it is to the people receiving this letter in the first place. But he's saying, I wish you were either hot or cold, but since you're just tepid, you are useless. Maybe the best illustration I can have of this is to say on a, on a cold winter day, I enjoy a hot cup of tea. On a hot summer day, I like iced tea. For those of you from New York, sweet iced tea. You can learn to like it here in the South. Anyway, that's... What I never like is a bottle of tea that has been sitting in the back of my car so that it is just the temperature of the day. It's just kind of blah. It does nothing. It's neither, it's not soothing, it's not refreshing, it's not tasteful. Jesus is speaking to them. He is saying, look, I wish you were either hot or cold, because right now you, you bring no pleasure whatsoever. I wish you were hot or cold. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about the nature of, of water. And the benefits of the properties of water when it is either hot or cold. When you think about hot water, hot water has some tremendous benefits. The reason the Hierapolis was popular was because it had the hot springs. People would go and they would bathe in the hot water. Not only was it soothing and feel good, but people were able to scrub and they were able to become clean and clean things with the hot water. Hot water has a purifying ability. Not only can you bathe, but if you heat it up enough and bring it to a boil, it's the water that is able to sterilize. To kill germs, it purifies when water is hot. Cold water, on the other hand, has other abilities. While it can be useful for cleaning in some ways, the primary benefit of cold water is it brings soothing and it brings relief. When somebody is dying of thirst and is thirsty or is dehydrated, you give them cold water because it is soothing, it it changes the body type, it benefits people. Jesus is saying to them, I wish you were either hot or cold, because but your lukewarm, your lukewarm is useless. I wish you were hot. You would be a people who have a purifying influence on those who are around you. I wish that you were cold, that you would have a refreshing influence on the people who are around you. But you are no different than the temperature of everybody else, believer or unbeliever, that are around you, and therefore you have no are no benefit to the people who are around you. You are no benefit whatsoever. This is a harsh statement. But it can be an encouraging statement, and I hope it's an encouraging statement for many of you here to begin with. Whether you've ever heard of what Jesus was speaking or not, this is, seems to be what most scholars would agree. This is really what he was getting at. It's a very practical indictment, but it should be an encouragement to many of the people who are in this church because many of you have a, certainly a soothing influence on the people who are around you. There are many of you through ministries of mercy, whether formal or just your own graciousness, are involving yourself in the lives of others bringing encouragement, bringing refreshment. And when you come, people feel better and more comfortable. The broken trust and rejoice in you. You are a blessing of cold water that, because of the gospel being at work within you. There are others who, through faithfulness, hopefully not through being obnoxious, but simple faithfulness of your life and the encouragement in the other way. There are people that periodically will say to you, I'm a better person because you're in my life. You know, the things that I used to do, but I see how you live your life, and I realize there's happiness, there's contentment. It's the way it seems to work. And so I've begun to do the things that you do. And I am a better person because of that. And you are a gift of hot water. You are a gift of purifying, a purifying gift to the people who are around you. But then there are others of us who may not be either. We are very similar to the Laodiceans. We need to take what Jesus is saying to them, in a sense, very personally and we'll be asking ourselves some questions. Because what Jesus is saying here, at least the implication of it is this, is the gospel brings about a change and makes us useful, beneficial for the people who around us, believer or unbeliever, for the sake of drawing people to Christ's kingdom. But the gospel that has no effect means somehow the gospel has been diluted, has been watered down, has just been allowed to sit, and is having no effect. Jesus says the gospel should always produce and make us either hot or cold. Now, some of you are good at both. Some of you may wonder why you're not good at the other. I think it's interesting here, and I'm only speculating here, but Jesus says, I wish you were either or the other. So there is no commandment for us. There's no expectation that you should be necessarily both you are wired you are gifted and you see the fruit of it when the gospel is at work within you But jesus is saying to these people and to those who find themselves tepid in their relationship to the gospel and 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 the impact it has in their lives it's just it's just amazing to me that you can hear and understand and to the point of receiving what i have done for you my life my death my resurrection, all for you, that I've set you free. And you couldn't care less. It means nothing to you. It doesn't impact you. It doesn't change you. And Jesus says, as he continues on here, I wish you were either hot or cold, in verse 16, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Well, some of you who are Bible students realize that this is a very sanitized expression of what Jesus actually says. Be closer to, I vomit you out of my mouth. If you are somebody who the gospel has not shaped you and moved you to be useful to the people who are around you, Jesus says, you make me sick. Jesus is emotional about this. I don't want to say in an erratic, unstable, but when he's saying this, it's, it's be like something tragic in your family or in your life happens to such a point that you've felt physically nauseous. It might be a death of somebody who was close to you and it came sudden and unexpected. It might be a broken relationship. It might be the fact that your company that you were providing for your family with uh, has decided it doesn't exist anymore or is no longer going to exist. And that unexpected, that knowledge, just you find yourself physically nauseous. Jesus is saying to people who are not impacted by the gospel, impacted by the knowledge of what he's done, in a way that shapes them and makes them beneficial for others, that same kind of nausea is in him, and it makes him want to empty his stomach. These are harsh words. It should get our attention. It should provide encouragement to those who have the fruit, but to the many of us who find ourselves somewhere in between and not being useful in that way, we need to take seriously what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus thinks. This is what, how we make Jesus feel, the one who has loved us and has not stopped loving us as we will see. Makes us wonder, how in the world could this be? How do we get into this situation? I mean, how can you receive the gospel and be this way? And Jesus goes on and says, here's probably the foundational attitude that he indicts them for. And we see that picking up in, in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Now, it's important that we clarify that wealth itself is not a problem. Nowhere is wealth condemned, but we are warned about it in the Scripture because we have a tendency to get our identity and our comfort and our security based on the wealth that we may have accumulated. Or if we have not accumulated, our, our insecurity and our, our jealousies and our anger may be rooted to the wealth that we wish we had that we do not have. Wealth has power, but wealth itself is not an evil thing. And these are people who are saying, I- I'm, I'm good. I've got everything. We're a wealthy people, and they were a wealthy people. I mean, there is a, in their history, something had happened um, probably about 30, 40 years prior to the writing of this letter in their town. A natural disaster wiped the entire town out. And they got tired of waiting for FEMA. So they said, we'll rebuild. We have the money. We have the technology. We have the manpower. and We have the money to bring other people in. And they rebuilt their entire town with their own resources and their own uh, uh, own labor. And then when the government came in, they said, just leave us alone. Now, I know in this church, that probably endears these people to some of you more than, uh, than almost any other churches, the Tea Party type people, whatever. That, see, it's biblical. I'm not commenting politically here. I'm just saying this is what these people did. These people were wealthy, had resource, were independent. They were independent of the government, which may be a good thing, but that same independence they also had essentially from the Lord. Lord, I'm glad you gave this to me. I'm glad you saved, died for me. I'm glad you saved me. I, I don't need anything from you. I'll let you know if my situation changes. That was their day-to-day mindset. And Jesus is speaking to these people. And what's always amazing to me is these are actually pretty good people. I mean, this is the group that receives the harshest criticism of any of these churches and he doesn't indict them at all for their theology. They weren't embracing or toying with any heresies, false teachings, their doctrine was probably pretty solid. He's not talking about any immorality or the acceptance or toleration of any immoral practices. Their lives were pretty moral people. So these were wealthy, moral, capable, theologically astute people. They would be one heck of a PCA church. trust in themselves, their own goodness and their own resources, not being aware that that kind of independence actually disconnects them from the power of the gospel because they have no great appreciation for what Jesus has done for them. It's important that we understand whether we are in their circumstance or not, the predisposition of us always to wish, in a sense, we were. We all want to be self sufficient and secure. And Jesus, Jesus nails them on it. And he says, Now, here's the reason why you say, and you are, you're rich, you have it all. But Jesus says, You don't really know your own condition. Finishing up in verse 17, he says, You say, I don't need anything, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Jesus says the problem is you don't know your real condition. You don't know the condition from which I saved you. You don't know that there's still sin in you. Even though you are called by my name, even though you are my people, even though you have been saved and been pardoned, you don't know that you're still weak in your own power. You still don't have anything that really matters. Reality is you're blind to your own circumstances. This, he's saying to the people who live in the ophthalmological capital of the world, known for what they know of the eye, known for the help people to see, they can't see even their own circumstances. Jesus is challenging them, and he's reminding us that there is no appreciation for Christ apart from repentance, apart from dependence upon him, and that there is no grace apart from repentance. The realization that even though you may be good people, never causing a scandal, generous in certain ways, is not the same of having a passion for Christ. And Jesus lays those indictments out, and then he moves to giving us his instructions. Now, I'll confess that instructions is not the best word to use here. It fits, but it's not the best word here, as we'll see in the reason why. But I ended up having a bunch of eyes in my outline, and I needed another one, so instructions is what I went with. So that's what you put in your notes. But here's what Jesus actually says, because what he says, as opposed to instruction, is very important. Feel the weight of what he's saying. I mean, these are heavy indictments that he's laid on these people. And now here's what he says, picking up in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. I counsel. I mean, somebody that's on a roll indicting like that, preaching like that, is going to say, I command, I demand, I expect. We need to understand the heart of our God. Even as he's speaking to these people, these words that are harsh, they are words not coming out of just anger, but it's his love that is making him sick. In the same way, if your spouse was unfaithful to you, I hope that it would make you nauseous. It's love, not just selfish anger. It's not the way things are supposed to be, but in his love, as he's speaking to them, he's saying, here's my counsel. It's a much lighter word, although it's coming from the one who has all wisdom, all knowledge, knows you better than you know yourself, and so that shouldn't be taken out of the equation. His counsel to you, to me, should have a lot of heaviness, a lot of weight because it has a lot of merit. But he dials it back from where we might expect him to go and you can see more of his love and more of his attitude as he's speaking to the people here. And here's my counsel and the first one, is I've already read, is buy gold from me so that you may really be rich. And white garments... So that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes. So the instructions that he's coming, Jesus is essentially, not essentially, Jesus is pointing them. You have everything you need, but what you seem to lack or don't care about or what's hanging in your closet is what really is of value and that is of me. Come to me and buy gold. Jesus is the gold. He is the treasure that he's saying, come to me and buy. It's interesting that he's saying buy to a people that he's indicting for their self-sufficiency. He's not just simply saying, go invest in gold. You know, take your wealth and put it in something that's going to be more endurable. That's part of what he's saying. He's saying, this is the only thing that really matters, come and buy. Well, how are they going to buy? Because he's already not impressed with their wealth. It's a parallel statement that we see that Isaiah in Isaiah 55, come and buy and eat, but not with money. Because you don't have those of you who have no money. It's an invitation to come. But what they have is of no value. Now He doesn't say they don't have anything. I liken what they had and what we have essentially to confederate money or monopoly money. It spends somewhere, but in real life it really has of no great value. The wealth that they have and the wealth that we have, it spends in this game, but it has absolutely no value whatsoever when we're talking about eternal things in the kingdom of heaven. It's not that you don't have it, If you play Monopoly the way I played Monopoly as a kid, I printed my own money. seemed to work. As long as the others got their share, nobody seemed to care. And it spent. It was just fine. We played. We could play longer that way. Try taking that to a store. It doesn't spend. And the money, the resources, the wealth that we possess is very real, and it plays in this game, but it's not ultimately. And Jesus is saying, look, What you have isn't going to spend what you need is gold come and buy it for me well how do you buy it if he won't take the cash the answer is he resources you with everything you need in order to receive the gold that he wants to give to you and that comes by faith and faith alone if he allows you to believe opens your eyes opens your heart to see your need and willingness and an ability to trust that christ is your all in all he has granted you and you now are able to receive the gold so that you truly have wealth that matters He says, come and buy clothes from me. These people who were naked, but they didn't know they were naked. They were clothing themselves in something, but what they were clothing themselves with actually revealed more about them than they thought they were covering. Jesus says, though you're naked, come buy from me pure garments and cover the ugliness of your nakedness. Now, that's not a body type issue. This is the reason we clothe is because we try to hide or we try to project and we try to project an image that people will be impressed with. He says, come and buy the garments. These are pure and spotless, and they will cover that up. Now, to me, something is interesting. If somebody is going to offer you an opportunity to try on some new clothes, you go to the store, high-end store, you're going to get something that you can put on, looks good, you like it. How many of you try on the clothes over the clothes that you're presently wearing? You know, good pair of dress pants. I got my jeans on, try to pull them on up and, you know. I have you a know, button-down shirt, but I've got a sweatshirt on. You put that over, and uh, yep, seems to fit. It's a little snug. It's ridiculous. So when Jesus is calling us to come and to buy clothes from him, in order to wear the clothes that he is providing for us, it requires that we strip ourselves so that we have nothing except for the clothes that we are wearing. That's the great exchange. But he's offering that to those who have already received him as he's offering it to us reminding us that everything we have comes as a gift from him, and what he has is far better than what we can provide for ourselves. That is wealth. That is when we have no need to be hiding and no need to shame, to feel ashamed of anything. And he's saying, this is, this is my counsel. Come, buy the gold, buy the clothes uh, from me, and just receive from me. the you know, solve for your eye. Don't trust in your own wisdom and understanding. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see reality. And he goes on and explains something that's important for us to understand. It certainly is important for them to understand as well. In verse 19 he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those of you that have been involved in athletics have probably heard a refrain. I know I did growing up and adopted it when I began coaching. Any good coach will say to players with potential, It's when I stop yelling at you. That's when you need to worry. As a player, I didn't like being yelled at. As a kid growing up, who likes to be yelled at? My dad was my coach early on. That lasted for a year in baseball and a year in football. And he never was willing to coach me ever again. So I get bumped up. But as I coach and adopted the same phrase, there's kids that have ability and maybe a little more ability than others, so much so that they can coast. The only way they're going to be able to achieve their ability is to maximize and appreciate what they have and to experience what they can experience is if somebody pushes them and gets on them. That's where that phrase comes in because inevitably I as a kid would complain, why are you you yelling at me or just leave me alone? And in some cases in, in my life it was, why are you yelling at me? I'm better than them and you don't yell at them. And I heard that phrase, and as a coach, doing the same thing. And some kids, in particular, it was it was the same way. You stay on them, and the answer is, stop worrying. Only when I stop pushing, stop correcting, stop prodding you. I mean, if I was a coach and I had a kid who can't tie his own shoes, and I had some, it's just nothing but cruel to be criticizing and pushing them. That's not love. That's just brutality. But for the kid who had the ability and needed to be pushed, when they finally understood and began to be self-motivated, they understood what it all was about. Jesus is saying essentially the same thing here. He's given some hard words. I mean, he's nailed these people. He's nailed us. He gentles it down saying, here's my counsel, here's my instruction. But then he reminds why he's doing this. Because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't. You should be worried if I don't say anything to you because then I don't know you. You're not mine. It's not my place to speak to you. But because I love you, I'm speaking this way to you. Now listen, take it in and be zealous to repent. In other words, the attitude, the areas where you're taking me for granted, realize it's wrong and reorient see me anew because that's what's going to light the fire that purifies or empowers the cooling mechanism Jesus finishes after he says that after he gives the instruction with an invitation it's an invitation that I've seen misused or at least mischaracterized I don't know how many times and I'm sure you've seen it too Basically, as I first started studying the Bible, this passage is usually used as an evangelistic technique, at least a picture, that's been likened by, uh, uh, put, put into art. Uh, I forget the artist's name, but you've seen that probably on any number of book titles or tracks. That the way I read, the way that goes is, well, poor helpless Jesus is just standing outside, may even be raining, while you're partying inside. Won't you just open the door and let him in? This is an evangelistic technique because it's being presented to people who are unbelievers, at least as I've always heard it. But we need to realize who Jesus is speaking to here. He's not speaking to the unbelievers, not that he's unconcerned about the unbelievers. He's speaking to the Christians, the people who are called by his name, the church. Laodicea. He never said they're not a church, they're not his. He just says that there is no impact. They are disconnected from the power of the gospel. And He's speaking to you and to me and saying... You've got a party going on, and you may even have a nameplate for me. You may tell people I'm coming, but you've never invited me, or you have not invited me to this particular part of your life. You've offended me. You make me sick. But I love you. And if you love me, and you want the fellowship that you think you sort of have, but take for granted. Just ask. I'm right here. This is what he says to those who are already his. This is what he says to you. What he says to me. That the light in Christ is available simply at the asking because he is already present. When we are his, we have the responsibility of participating in fellowship with him before we were believers we're dead dead people don't do a whole lot of stuff they don't open doors they don't swim and grab ropes out in the middle of the ocean they just kind of float out there and do nothing dead people don't throw parties you who have been made alive you who have been blessed with tremendous gifts with Christ and are alive Know that Christ is there. Talk about wanting to have fellowship with him, but maybe you haven't thought about it. Maybe you didn't even know you were ignoring him. He's there. He's here. He says, if you're just being aware that you've, I'm not with you, open the door and I am there. And beautiful promises that he gives to those who do that. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my Father on His. In other words, if you just trust, believe, and walk with Christ, you're being reminded of what is ours. We are joint heirs with Christ. In fellowship with Him and the Father. And He who has an ear, let him hear. With the Spirit, says to the churches, to the Christians, to those who are neither hot nor cold, but want the love for Christ to be rekindled. He's inviting you to rekindle it. He's not walking away. He's not rejecting you. He's showing love in a way that truly is amazing. Let me go to him in prayer. Father, as we come, I do pray that with thanksgiving that you've given us this hard word, I pray that for some here, it would be a word of encouragement that their lives truly are evidence of a close fellowship that they have with you, and that their love for you is reflecting itself in practical ways to people all around them. Lord, how I thank you for them and on behalf of them. For others of us, Lord, I pray that we would hear these words and realize that while we may be useless, we are far from hopeless. We are not rejected. We are not despised. And while we bring you sorrow, Lord, your love overcomes that, and that we would be a people who would take you up on your invitation by inviting you to walk with us, to lead us, to guide us, that we would forsake our dependence upon our own resources and learn that true, genuine, lasting value is found in you, and you alone. Father, renew our minds. Renew our lives. Renew our church. I pray in Christ.